Hello, and welcome to the 19th Amendment Speaker Series Podcast, an audio rebroadcast of the Speaker Series presented by the National Association of Women Judges, the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles County Bar Association in the summer and fall of 2020. My name is Jennifer Leland, and I am honored to share the powerful conversations between successful, inspirational, and impactful women in entertainment, sports, politics, law, academia, and business. We hope you'll enjoy these great conversations and share them with others. We note that these interviews were recorded before Kamala Harris became the Democratic Vice Presidential nominee and Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away. These historical moments would have played a large part in our conversations. Justice Ginsburg's influence on women in the legal profession cannot be understated. In her memory, we share these conversations and pave the way for continued dialogue in service of a more equitable future. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Jennifer Leland, the immediate past president of the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles and of counsel at Robbins Kaplan in Los Angeles. On behalf of the National Association of Women Judges, the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and the Los Angeles County Bar Association, welcome to the seventh installment of our 19th Amendment Speaker Series. The goal of this series has been, of course, to celebrate the passage of the 19th Amendment of the Constitution, giving women the right to vote, and to acknowledge the struggle that led to that right. We also hope to shed light on the fact that the passage of the 19th Amendment did not benefit all women. Women of color were largely excluded from the polls and would have to continue for the right to vote for decades beyond the 1920s until the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was enacted. With our speaker series, we're looking at how the 19th Amendment has impacted women today by engaging in a series of virtual conversations with inspiring women from around the country who have achieved success in traditionally male-dominated fields. We've asked them how they came to be in their career, how they've leveraged their leadership to help other women, the importance of mentorship, and some of the challenges they still face, among other topics. Today, our conversation will be with four judges. I'm delighted to co-moderate this panel with Julie Gerchik, a partner in the firm of Glazer Weil in Los Angeles, a member of the board of the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and a member of the executive committee of the Los Angeles Bar Association's litigation section. And with that, I will turn it over to Julie to introduce our program and our panelists. Thank you, Jennifer, and welcome everyone. We are thrilled to have such honored guests with us today. So the title of today's panel is Voices from the Bench, an Examination of Diversity and Inclusion in the Courts. And I will only give a very short introduction, uh, literally just everyone's title for our panelists today because we are going to let our panelists tell you their exciting stories themselves. So to begin with, we have the Honorable Phyllis Fry with us from the Municipal Court in Houston, Texas. Honorable Michelle Kim, Los Angeles Superior Court. Honorable Serena Murillo from Los Angeles Superior Court, and the Honorable Karen Stevenson, United States District Court for the Central District of California. Thank you all so much for being with us. We really feel very honored and privileged to have such distinguished panelists. So with that, let me turn it back over to Jennifer to begin. Thank you, Julie. 
Um, we thought it would be a good idea to start the conversation with what led each of you to become a judge and what was your career path. So Judge Fry, can we start with you and can you tell us about what led you to become a judge? Certainly. Um, I became a judge quite by accident. Uh, for the listeners, it will help you to know I'm trans and I'm very out about it. I started in 1970 as a first lieutenant in the United States Army and they decided to run me out because they learned I was trans, hadn't transitioned yet. So I used my two engineering degrees and began to practice engineering here in Houston, Texas. During that time, I met the woman who became my second wife and we've had our 47th anniversary recently. I came out and went full-time as Phyllis in 1976, and I could not get work. She was a school teacher, and as we all know, school teachers are underpaid. We were desperately poor. We were so poor that the first Christmas after I was blackballed uh, by the engineering community here in Houston, that our church brought us canned food from the altar since we were the, we were the poor family in our church. And also, we were so poor that we turned off our air conditioner in Houston, Texas for 10 consecutive summers to try and cut down on our electric bill. I used the uh, GI Bill to go to uh, law school. And in 1980, I became a lawyer, but no one would hire me. We struggled. I had a few clients, not many, a will, a simple divorce. And so I began to sell Amway cleaning products to the gay bars in the Montrose section of Houston. Finally, in 1986, several judges in the criminal courts who knew me began to give me appointments to represent indigent criminal defendants. And that's pretty much what I did for uh, 30 years. In 2010, uh, Anise Parker, our mayor, uh, the first out lesbian mayor of a major metropolitan city and my old softball buddy uh, from the uh, lesbian softball league years prior appointed me to be a, an associate municipal judge. Associate being I could still practice law. I was part-time and remain a part-time municipal judge. It's a long story. I'm going to cut it short. I will refer you to Google New York Times colon Phyllis Fry, because in 2015, I was on the front page above the fold of a Sunday edition of the New York Times. I'll stop there. Thank you, Judge Fry, for sharing your story. And I, I think we did forget to mention that you were the first openly transgender woman appointed to the bench, and you've certainly been a role model for the transgender community. And I did read that New York Times article and it, it was fascinating. So everyone should definitely Google it. Judge Stevenson, what about you? What, how did you become a judge? Welcome everyone. It's so great to be on this call with my colleagues here, judicial officers, and particularly Judge Fry. My path was equally serendipitous, as it were. Um, I was not one of those people who in kindergarten decided I wanted to be a judge. I grew up with a single mom in Washington, D.C. She worked for the D.C. public school system as a psychologist. I didn't know any lawyers in my family, and I never set foot in a courtroom before I actually ended up going to law school. 
my path, I came out of law school. Actually, I went to law school with 18-month-old twin boys. So I was a single parent by choice with uh, toddlers at Stanford Law School, which was a remarkable experience. Stanford Law School, the community, my professors were incredibly supportive um, and made that a, a wonderful time in our lives as a family. But because I came out of law school with pre-kindergartners, essentially, it was really important to me to be in private practice, just financially, in order to support my family. So I was in private practice for about 17 years. I was a proud member of the Women Lawyers Association for um, a number of years and served on the LA County Bar Association's Executive Committee for the Litigation Section. I was in civil practice, enjoyed the the hecticness of private practice, being an advocate, serving clients, and just and had never thought about the bench, honestly. And over the course of several months, three friends who did not know each other individually mentioned to me, you know, there's positions open for a magistrate judge in the Central District. Have you considered applying? And my first answer was, nope. <laughs> I'm having a good time doing what I'm doing. I love my job. I'm very happy at my firm. And then Several months later, another friend who was on the Merit Selection Committee, actually was a partner on my firm, said, hey, Karen, I'm on the Merit Selection Committee. I see all kinds of people applying for these magistrate judge positions. Had you ever thought of it? I think you should consider it. And I was like, nope, I'm really, thanks for that, but I'm good. And then a, and about four weeks later, a third friend, independently of the other two, basically said the same thing. And at which point I'm like, okay, it's a sign of an indication from the universe. Let me at least be open to the possibility. So I went on the Central District website, pulled down the um, application, and also made an appointment to have lunch with several uh, two um, who were sitting magistrate judges at the time, Judge Suzanne Siegel and a current colleague, Judge um, Magistrate Judge Elka Sagar. And I came over to the Central District. I had lunch with them. I talked to them about the job, about the work that they do. And I thought, wow, that could be really interesting. It was a perfect flexion point in my career where I thought, well, Karen, you could step up and take on a different challenge. And significantly, my twins were headed off to college. <laughs> so I was not sort of struggling with young school-aged children at that point, and it made it much easier for me, I think, that's just me personally, to make that transition. But it has been an extraordinary experience. I'm deeply honored every day to work as part of the federal court system, and particularly to serve here in the Central District. So with that, I'll pass it to my next colleague. Thank you so much, Judge Stevenson. Why don't we hear next from Judge Mario? My journey, I could characterize it as serendipitous. I like to characterize it as stumbling. And the reason is this. So my dad was a farm worker who came here from Mexico about 15 years before I was born. And Spanish was my first language. My mom was a, didn't have a job at first and then was a grocery clerk. And she was only 18 years old when I was born. So needless to say, I didn't know any lawyers or anything like that. And growing up with my dad and my grandparents who had third grade educations and didn't speak English, and then presenting white like I do, I saw a huge discrepancy in the way that my family was treated and the way that other people were treated. There were a number of things about their status as uh, farm workers, as non-English speakers, and my role in assisting them not just to understand kind of American civic life, 
but navigating all aspects of what it really means to be an American that no like eight-year-old or five-year-old or seven-year-old or 12-year-old should really (laughs) have to do. And so I didn't ever think that I would even be a lawyer. Um, My grandmother used to hope someday I would have a job in an air-conditioned office. And she's like, someday you can work in a bank or be a secretary. And not that those are bad jobs, but that was kind of the apex of of what she thought would be great for me. And my dad had other ideas, and so did my grandfather. And it was really important to them that I go to college. I played basketball. I ended up getting into Brown University and sight unseen. My parents, my dad made me go because he's like, it's an Ivy League school, you're going. And uh, I had never been to Rhode Island. I had never visited it. I I didn't know one kid that was going there. And so I went from Chino, California, you know, cow country, USA, to this Ivy League school with kids that went to Exeter and Andover and Choate and all of these fancy prep schools that I had never, ever heard of and got there and thought, okay, well, I'm here, you know, now what? Somehow I navigated that, ended up transferring back to California, going to law school. And when I got there again, I thought, well, now what? And thankfully, there have been people along the way who uh, assisted me in developing what I was seeking, which was meaning in my job. Um, I wanted to find a career where I could make a difference in the lives of regular people. And that has always kind of been the thing that I follow. People have kind of assisted me along the way. And once I was in law school, a couple of professors told me, you know, you'd be a good trial attorney. You should, you should try it out. And I did this trial ad program. I got an externship at the district attorney's office, which is not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a public defender. But at the district attorney's office, I saw how speaking Spanish opened all of these doors to people to tell me their stories, to tell me what had happened. I also realized another jarring thing, which was that I did not look at brown defendants the same way as my non-people of color counterparts saw them. I saw a lot of um, dehumanizing of people who were my neighbors and friends and and people that I kind of understood their stories. And that made me a little dissatisfied. So ultimately, I wanted to leave the DA's office. And the freedom that I witnessed by a really courageous judge who I admired very much named Michael Pastor led me to see that, you know, he's the only person in this room that has a better job than I do. I would be able to do what I think is right all of the time without somebody telling me no. And so that was from the first moment I met Michael Pastor, I knew like, this is, this is what I need to do. And so I, I don't want to belabor the point, but that's what led me to the stumbling journey that got me to the bench uh, at this moment. And, and like Judge Stevenson, I've certainly never looked back. Thank you, Judge Maria. That's a fantastic story. And I appreciate you sharing all of that with us. And it's a great segue into Judge Kim, because I know that she you were a public defender before you became a judge, Judge Kim. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about your journey to the judgeship, which I think shares some similarities with Judge Maria. Sure, yes. Hi, everyone. And I know that some of Judge Fry's friends are watching. So hello, Houston. So I really like what Judge Mario was talking about when she talked about meaning. And that has really driven me my entire career. And so I was a public defender, a career public defender. I was a public defender for 16 years. I got there by way of the AIDS epidemic. And so early on in the AIDS epidemic, it was gay men and people of color and basically our poor folks that were getting infected. And so these were people that were on the margins in terms of our public policy and our national priorities. And so we were neglecting 
these populations and what happened because we neglected them is the HIV spread and it spread unchecked. And so there were ripple effects that went out from that neglect. And so one of those ripples hit my family and my father was infected early on in the AIDS epidemic through a blood transfusion and he died shortly thereafter. And so ultimately that's why I became a public defender was so I could try to pay attention to some of the people that we have been neglecting as a society. And so I was a public defender and, and when I first became a public defender, you didn't become a public defender ever thinking that you were going to be a judge. There was no path to judge from being a public defender. At least that's not how I kind of viewed the landscape at the time. And it was only due to the vision of our most recent governors that the bench started to diversify. And our governors had a vision of a diverse and inclusive judiciary and all of a sudden the doors started to seem like they were opening. And so women and people of color and public defenders, so there was diversity by practice area as well, started getting appointed. And the door seemed to be opening. So the interesting thing is, is what did I do with that information? I took that information and I went home to my husband, my spouse, my husband, he's a man, and I told him, I said, you need to apply to the bench. So I thought, you know, you, what you need to walk through that door, right? And so I had asked him to apply and a few months went by and he was not making any progress on his application. And so there was one evening that I prepared my Hail Mary speech to him. And I thought, I'm just gonna go for it. I think this is really going to convince him that he needs to apply. And so that evening, I sat him down and I said, you really need to apply for our daughters. We have two daughters. And of course, as soon as I said that, I had one of the biggest epiphanies I've ever had in my life. And it was a winning argument. And it was a winning argument for me to apply to the bench. So I figured, you know what, that really is an argument for me to apply to the bench so I could be an example for my daughters. And so that night I started working on my application and fortunately it was due to the vision of our last few governors that that door did open for me and I was able to walk through that door. That's remarkable, Judge Kim, that experience you went through and that, that segues very nicely into another thought that we had, another question we thought would be good to discuss, which is the issue of female mentorship and uh, the idea of role modeling and how important it is for not anyone may think. Um, so I wanted to turn and ask, you know, Judge Stevenson, did you have examples of women, either generally or specifically women of color around you as you were growing up that you could, even if you didn't know that you could see that were in the judiciary or as lawyers, or was that really not a part of your experience? Right. In terms of personal in close experience, as I mentioned, I no one in my family has been lawyers. Even now, I think I'm the only lawyer in my family. <laughs> but what I did do, I grew up in Washington, D.C., as I mentioned. And so I was, as even as a kid, I was very aware of federal government, very aware of things going on. Um, we lived on a bit of a hill and we could see the cupola of the capital, the nation's capital, 
out of our second floor window. And so I always sort of had a sense of the dignity and majesty of the federal government. And so there were a couple of people um, that I saw from way far away in terms of public image. One was Barbara Jordan. I was a, a kid watching Barbara Jordan, yay Texas, <laughs> from in the Watergate hearings. She was probably one of the most impressive articulate women I had ever seen in the public sphere. And then, and the other was a woman named Patricia Harris, who was an African-American woman who served as, I believe she was a, a secretary of housing and urban development way back when, because I was in elementary school and she was a lawyer. And I remember reading about her in the paper in the Washington Post and thinking, wow, that's amazing. But it never occurred to me as a kid that that was possible for me. I was good at school and enjoyed school, but I didn't sort of immediately glom onto those professions as something that would apply to me. But I always had a deep, deep admiration for those two women in my mind. And even now I say to younger women who ask the mentorship, I think I probably would have stumbled around a lot less in the dark and maybe bumped into a few newer things in the dark on my professional path if I had had more direct uh, mentorship. Um, and now it's, it still matters. I think it's really important that women support other women. And um, in fact, along the way, I have found it most troubling when women have been harsher on other women than maybe even the men in their organizations. The men maybe feel guilty or feel like they really ought to try. Um, but sometimes I've, along the way, I've found women being harder on other women and less flexible, less fluid, less sort of accommodating. And I speak of that particularly as a single mom. Particularly, um, there, there are special challenges when you've got young kids. You know, I've always lived in the city because my theory was when the nurse calls and says your kid's throwing up in the nurse's office, I can't be an hour away. So the women in my life who have been um, accepting along my career, because I, like I said, I had kids the whole way through, young kids, um, parenting by myself, really, really have mattered. And I've been deeply grateful for those friendships. And now I try to extend the same friendship to my law clerks, um, and to law students who extern with me, um, male or female, but to be, um, I touch them and be someone who is supportive and interested in what they're interested in in terms of advancing their careers. You know, when we spoke before, you said, you know, and we were talking about the importance of female role modeling and, and mentoring. You said, if you can see it, you can be it. That's very true. It really helps. It's really hard. I and mean, people talk about, you know, have heard the conversation about the class ceiling, and, um, but it's much, much harder to be the one and only, or to strive for something where you don't have any guidelines about what it takes or what it might take or how to prepare yourself for the next level in your career. So um, it's really, really um, important that we be visible as people from different backgrounds, different professional paths. I mentioned at the beginning, I wasn't one of those people who decided in kindergarten to be a judge. Sometimes there's a sense that there is one way to do this, or you have to do this at five years in your career, you have to do that at seven years in your career, you have to be at X place at 10 years in your career. 
And it's simply not true. Life takes its own path. It can be stumbling, staggering. It may seem misguided, but I'm, I'm a deep believer in doing the thing that makes your heart sing. And that will get you where you need to be. I was talking in our conversation, preparing for this, about the fact that many people don't realize that Sandra Day O'Connor, well, first of all, having graduated third in her class from Stanford University, um, couldn't find a job anywhere as a lawyer, especially here in Los Angeles. And um, elsewhere, she couldn't find a job. And I've brought with me a, a quote from um, her a biography by Evan Thomas first, which said, in the spring of 1959, when Sandra was pregnant again, her babysitter quit and moved away. She left her law practice to become nominally a stay-at-home mother, but immediately worried that if she left the law, she would never be able to return. And as it turns out, Sandra Day O'Connor ended up spending five years at home raising her kids before she returned to law practice. And a lot of folks don't, don't know that that's the case. So all of our lives have what appear to be maybe detours, dead ends, cul-de-sacs, but it worked out okay for her. <laughs> I think it can work out for, for other women. If we support one another, I think we need to be much kinder, more compassionate and supportive of one another in our career paths and choices. We can't hate the people who have kids and we can't hate the people who don't have kids. It can all work if we are um, kind and open-minded towards one another. And remember, Sandra Day O'Connor did okay after five years at home with her kids. She certainly did. It worked Judge, out. Can I add something to that as well? Yeah. I really like what Judge Stevenson said about if you can see it, you can be it. Not only is it important to be able to see it, but I think it's important to point out that for women, many times these roles are not just not seen, they're obscured. And what I mean by that, that um, for instance, when I first became a DA, I remember going into Department 100 and seeing a giant wall of men's faces. And then Civil Court, Department 100, giant wall of men's faces. Then when I had to work on the Court of Appeal, you walk down the hallway, rows and rows of men's faces in frame. And I think that it's even harder to perceive yourself. You're constantly reminded that you don't really belong there. You know, so that makes mentorship even more important to have somebody to not just recognize, like Judge Pastor for me, he was a sympathetic person. I went to him and told him I wanted to be a judge, mainly because I didn't think he would laugh at me and he would actually tell me how to do it. Now, if there had been another Latina or even another woman at that juncture of my career, and there were, there were women, nobody I knew as well as Judge Pastor, no Latinas on the court back in 1996 when I first started, um, I mean, that I knew and but I think it's extremely important to think of yourself as an ally and a mentor and to seek allies and mentors in order to overcome the fact that many times your vision of what you might want to be in your future is not only not before you, but it's obscured by the images of others. I mean, absolutely right. And we see that, and I think in all walks of life, in all, in all different careers and professions, but certainly, uh, certainly in ours. Judge Fry, I want to turn to you for a moment. You, as we've said, you're the first trans judge in the country, so not a lot of uh, role modeling there uh, for you to be able to rely on. So just taking that up a notch, I, I want to ask you, do you ever uh, feel that you're tired of being what the, the spokesperson for being trans in the judiciary? Because that's certainly what you become to some degree. Not at all. I'm the role model. I, I understand that. 
in preparing to answer your question, I was thinking the best way. It's important that you also know that I'm ag agnostic, but I have read the Bible. And Jesus had a parable about gifts and putting them under baskets. I've been given an enormous amount of gifts in my life. I'm an Eagle Scout. I have two engineering degrees. I'm a military officer. I have um, a law degree. Uh, on and on and on. I'm pub I can speak in public. I'm very good at public speaking. And I like people. And so I meet people. And I'm out to just about everyone. I don't wear a sign when I go to the grocery store that says I'm transgender, although I do have a t-shirt that says I'm transgender menace. I wear that a lot of time. But I would be wasting all of these gifts that I've been given if I did not allow myself to be a role model to other people. So no, it doesn't bother me at all. In fact, when my wife, we're in a senior living facility now, in case you hadn't noticed, I have white hair and I'm 72. Um, we moved into a senior living facility and I did not want to go through um, a lot of uh, rumors because you need to understand that back in 76 when I transitioned and went became Phyllis, the neighborhood was not a very nice place to be. Our house was vandalized many times. We got a lot of obscene phone calls at Easter and Christmas. We got tires slashed. It was not fun. But by the time 2000 came, uh, I was uh, elected and re-elected many times to the board of the uh, Civic Association. And the reason why the neighborhood came around is because people either moved or they got over themselves or they just died. And so we made it in the neighborhood. Well, we didn't want to have to break in a new neighborhood. So when we came here, I made up a, a couple of hundred flash drives with the New York Times article on it. And I just started handing them out and say, you need to read this. You need to know who I am. And as a result, um, Trish and I are very well uh, received. And I know I get to the public speak a lot and be at the Harvard Law School uh, in, in October. Um, I've spoken at a lot of the schools. And uh, it's, you know, it's, it's who I am. That's amazing. I want to ask you, you know, you just spoke about some of the obstacles you face generally in, in your life and certainly in your neighborhood. Do you feel that you have experienced additional obstacles from other litigants or attorneys taking the bench? Uh, not really. Um, the main reason is because most of the law I practiced in Harris County was criminal defense law. And I took cases to try. And I was very good at what I did. That doesn't mean I didn't lose because I did. But I always made the DAs work. Um, and one DA uh, refused to make a good offer. And uh, so I just told her, and I said, well, this trial is going to last for five days. And she said, no, it's going to last for three. And I knew how to make a trial last for five days. And so she didn't get all of her office work done. And had to work for two weekends. Um, after that, she made reasonable uh, plea bargains. The lawyers um, at the courthouse were skeptical at first, but I did find sisters and uh, the black lawyer, black women lawyers that I met, 
and I also found a lot of sisters in the Harris County Democratic uh, Party um, that I was very involved with in the late 70s and 80s. But one of my black sisters, I asked her early on, I said, you know, I know that I, a lot of people are looking at me and a lot of people are wondering about me, but it seems like the uh, black women lawyers uh, don't have a problem. And she said, well, why would we have a problem? If you think about it, we all are educated. We all are lawyers. And yet at the courthouse or the grocery store or any place that we go, the first thing that people notice is our external appearance. And you have all these degrees, you have all this training, and what do people judge you by? Your external appearance. You're not black, but you're just as black as we are in the way that people treat you by not who you are, but the way you appear. So I had a lot of mentors. Uh, I had a lot of women mentors. I had some men mentors in the early days. My wife, I think, is my best mentor. She hadn't stayed with me. Uh, I would have been out on the street, literally. I would have been out on the street. Um, she adopted an easy attitude, and that was when we were first dating, she said, oh, I told her I might become a woman. She said, well, if that's all that's wrong with you, I'll, I'll see if I can hang on. And then after three years, when I was going absolutely crazy, she said, you're going to have to be who you are, and I'll see if I can hang on. And she did, and a lot of people uh, tried to... Uh, say that she should divorce me. And her response was, what has she done wrong except be true to who she is? So I've been very blessed with a lot of good people who loved me and taken me under their wing and embraced me. Uh, a lot of them were women, some of them were men, uh, a lot of them were people of color, some of them were others. So uh, yeah, I've, been, I've had a good life. Doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of time I was bitter, because I was. But I uh, haven't been bitter in many decades now. Thank you, Judge Fry. I, I like how you refer to your allies as your sisters. That's a great um, term to use. I like it a lot. Sort of along the same lines, I wanted to pivot a little bit and ask some of the other judges about sort of how they've been perceived on the bench, either because they are a woman judge or a woman judge of color. But before throwing the question out there, I looked up some statistics about women judges and approximately 34% of state court judges are women. Only 8% of state court judges are women of color. The numbers are similar for the federal system as well with around 33% of federal judges are women and 10.4% are women of color. Those numbers are pretty low given the number of women law school graduates and the number of women practicing law but they're better than the numbers we see in the private sector, which does suggest that the courts have maybe made more progress toward gender equality than the private sector has. So I wanted to ask each of you about your experiences on the bench. Um, and we'll start with Judge Murillo. You know, whether have you experienced sexism on the bench or do you think that people perceive you differently because either because you're a woman or you're a woman of color? So I'll answer the first part. Have I experienced sexism on the bench? I would say yes. And some of the obvious questions or answers are, you know, is that from litigants, parties? Um, 
yes, <laughs> they definitely treat women judges, I think, different than they teach um, male judges. I teach demeanor and I teach with a male judge. And that's been really illuminating in finding out the different responses that he and I both get from uh, various people in the courtroom, just being talked over, being called ma'am, assuming that I don't know things, having people try to educate me on issues. So, so that certainly happens. There's another aspect that I'd like to address, though, which is something that you pointed to, Jennifer, in the percentage and the numbers. And you pointed out that in the public sector, sector, perhaps you're not doing as well as the, I'm sorry, in the private sector, maybe women aren't doing as well as they are in the public sector. And, and I think by sheer numbers, um, that might be true. But I also think that diversity can be misleading. I think that it's important to always think of diversity in terms of inclusion and not just who is present, but whether those women who are in the court have positions of um, authority, whether they can direct policy, whether they can be supervisors, whether they can in criminal sit in felony courts. And I think that when you think about it, and you know the original identity, identity politics were and dictated that courts, uh, legislators, um, jurors, lawyers, they were all men. I mean, for 200 years, not just any men, white men, because people of color and women were not allowed, as we've been talking about for weeks with the 19th Amendment, right? And so the transition, I think, is an interesting topic with regard to sexism and diversity and inclusion, because when you have, um, when I joined the court, I remember looking around and thinking, wow, that's crazy. LA, LA, biggest court in the nation, pretty much, local court. We've had two women presiding judges ever in 200 years. That is shocking to me. When I looked around at the number of supervising judges of districts, I remember I counted at one point when I first became a judge, there was like something like 18, I think two or three were women, um, heads of committees, felony assignments. And so when I, when I joined the bench, I was so excited. And then I looked around and I thought, huh, like how does, how does that continue to happen? And I think that sexism in that context, it's not blatant. I mean, and, and I think people confuse it for sex harassment. Like, well, if nobody is objectifying you and grabbing you, it should be fine. But that's not really true. I, I think sexism plays out differently where there's this expectation, and, and I've only worked in the public sector, right? There's this expectation where you as a woman are expected to kind of be this caring, attentive subordinate to whoever your male boss is or your male superior. And the minute you deviate from that path, you are threatened with the most powerful tool, which is exclusion right? And so you're always navigating that not getting excluded. You want to move up. You want to get those better assignments. You want to be in leadership. You want to have these supervisory roles. And that is the issue that needs to be addressed. I think when Judge Stevenson is talking about being an ally, I think a lot of things uh, I've had to learn how to do in order to combat that policing of having to be the caring, attentive subordinate to a male boss, as opposed to being the boss myself or making those decisions myself. And part of it comes from having mentors and allies. Part of it comes from having the courage, like Hannah Beth Jackson said during one of our first panels, of not being afraid of this narrative. Like the minute you wanna say what you really think about something, you have this narrative of, well, don't do it. You know, you're gonna get excluded or you're gonna get labeled or you're gonna do this. Having the courage to do it anyway. And I think also having the courage, especially like in this election, of voting and giving women real power, real power to lead, not conditional power to lead via another man or maybe a person who is not sympathetic to women in leadership roles. So I think that when you're talking about the numbers of women in the court and whether there is sexism, 
again, I don't think it's blatant, but I think that dynamic happens and it has a real effect in who is actually leading the court and making these decisions. And I think that's where the work needs to be done. Hey, Judge Maria. No, I think those are great points. And I think you really, you know, you hit our theme. One of our themes of this program was that diversity and inclusion are different. Just because an organization may be diverse doesn't mean that it's inclusive. And some signs of an organization, whether it's a court or a firm being inclusive, are seeing women in those leadership roles, in the role of, of power, because that that's how women advance when they're put in those positions of power. Um, Judge Stevenson or Judge Kim, would either of you want to talk about your experiences on the bench um, and whether you've experienced sort of some of this, um, not blatant sexism, but you've been maybe misperceived because you're a woman or a woman of color? When I think about sexism, I think about gender bias and I think about implicit and explicit gender bias. So with the explicit gender bias or any explicit bias, I think it's relatively easier to deal with in the sense that you see something, you say something, right? But with implicit bias, I think it's so tricky because by definition, right, a person doesn't even necessarily know that they have that bias and that they're making decisions based on that particular bias. And so I think it's tricky. And I think with, um, with implicit bias, you know, it's nothing shameful in the sense that everyone has it. I think the challenge is to just deal it and confront it and make sure you're not acting on implicit bias. And, you know, the brain just naturally takes shortcuts. So I think that that's what we do. And we need to address that from there. I think I had one example where I was volunteering for a mock trial and this was for middle school students and I was volunteering as a judge and there was another attorney volunteering to score the session. So it was me and this other attorney. The other attorney was a distinguished looking older white man and both of us, we walked into the room, the courtroom, and it was already filled with the students and their coaches and we walked in in our business attire and I didn't think anything of it except when I started approaching the bench and I started putting on my robe, then I started to hear some gasps in the audience and some whispering, oh, she's the judge. And at that moment, I realized what had happened, right? So there was some implicit bias happening there. And so what happens when you see something and your brain doesn't compute, right? You're learning, you're forming new connections, you're forming new synapses. And so I was really thrilled to actually to be part of the kids learning that day, not only in terms of their mock trial skills, but also the gender bias piece, which I was glad to be an example for them so that they could, if they see it, then maybe they could achieve it as well. And I'll jump in very briefly there. My experience on the bench is often being mansplained by lawyers and litigants who think the black girl judge doesn't understand patent law, isn't going to understand intellectual property, probably is, and I'm just like, really? Really? <laughs> this is my job. I work hard at it. And I did have one lawyer who insisted on calling me ma'am, um, rather than your honor, in federal court. I find that to be rare. Generally, um, folks understand that um, the decorum in federal court is a bit different than it is in state court. You stand when you address the court, you address the court from the lectern, you, you know, you're not slouching at counsel table and going, you know, hey judge, how was your weekend kind of thing. 
but it happens. It still happens. And, um, you know, you just have to have a stiff, strong back and be very direct. I mean, with this one lawyer, I had this case in front of me for quite a while. Literally, he was at the point of almost being sanctioned. And if you call me ma'am one more time, as opposed to your honor, you're going to need to bring your checkbook to court next time. And he finally got the message. But I just wanted to loop back quickly. I think there's a difference between allies and mentors. Allies are really, really important. And the difference is mentors, especially in the private sector, all the firms assign someone to help you along the way. Allies are people who are actually invested in your success, in your success. And many times your allies may need to be outside your organization because people in the organization have their own agendas and they have their own amount of sort of political capital in the organization that they may or may not want to expend on you at any given point. Or they may need to conserve their political capital for their own interests. So I think it's really important that you understand who your allies are because allies are people who are actually invested in your well-being, in your advancement. That is their commitment. Doesn't mean they're not committed to themselves, but it is different than being sort of an assigned mentor who's there to show you the ropes of the organization. The question is when push comes to shove, who's gonna step up and say, you know, she's ready to be first chair on this trial. Who's willing to stand in front of a client and say, absolutely, let her take uh, those key depositions in the case. Or when you're interested in applying for the judiciary, they are completely 100% behind you. Um, almost the way Judge Kim was, was cheerleading for her husband. These are the people who are your cheerleaders in your career and you need to find them. They change over time, but they are really, really important. And I think that's a distinction between allies and mentors. We need both, but it is your allies who are the ones who are there when you don't get the dream job and are telling you, okay, wipe your mascara off your face. You can cry today and tomorrow we're getting back to work and get back on that horse and keep going down this road. It doesn't matter about today's disappointment. That's an ally. Thank you, Judge Stevenson. Recently, I've heard a lot about not just allies and mentors, but actually taking the conversation one step further. And instead of just an ally, actually saying, who's going to be a coworker? That if we're fighting, uh, whatever it may be, and in this case, we're talking about uh, the battle against sexism, it's also saying who is going to be a coworker, who's going to be alongside you. And it's just as you described it, somebody who's actually going to go and get in the fight with you, not someone who's just going to stand on the sideline and say, oh, too bad, sorry, but someone who's going to actually get in there and get into that fight with you and uh, make, make a difference. So somebody who's actually going to be a coworker and work alongside you uh, in, in helping and helping move you forward or uh, even on a larger level, helping any kind of movement move forward. So with that, I want to turn for a minute and look at, uh, we're running out of time. I just want to look at a macro level and just ask, and I'll throw this open to uh, each of you or whomever would like to speak. Do you think that women today, that women judges have a voice in shaping the courts? And if not, how can the female judges that we see here today, but on a broader scale, women throughout the judiciary, how can they have that voice? How can we help shape the courts that way? Well, I'll, very quickly, um, here in the Central District, we've had a number of extraordinary women be chief judge of our district. 
There are a number of women chief judges around, uh, around the country. So I think at the federal level, there's been tremendous progress and women serve in the kinds of powerful positions that Judge Murillo was mentioning. It's happening. So I really think the key, just, just coming back to the implicit bias issue, I really think that all professions, but we're, we're talking about judges and lawyers right now, everyone needs implicit bias training. And if you've had it before, you need to do it again. And then we need to ask ourselves the question, how is this factoring into our decisions, if anything? So how are we hiring? How are we assigning cases? How are we placing judges in different courts? What, what decision-making process are we using? Judge Murillo mentioned getting a felony spot. Like, how is this happening? And can we check our implicit biases and see if there, that has anything to do with it? I think Judge Kim is right. I think implicit bias is really important. But I'll be honest, I don't think that's enough because the truth of the matter is, Nobody's going to voluntarily give up their position in favor of women. Women have to demand it. Women have to be willing to require and hold people accountable, hold men who are in those positions accountable for why don't we have an equal number of supervising judges? And that's just an example. Frankly, I haven't counted. I'm not trying to throw my court under the bus, certainly. I haven't counted how many supervising judges we have now or anything like that. But I mean, in general, there aren't enough women at the table in those decisions. And I don't think it's going to happen on its own just by people doing self-evaluation and thinking, oh, you know, I might harbor some implicit bias. Let me change this. Some people will. Most people will not. And I think women need to hold themselves accountable for making sure that that happens by asking, how come more women aren't in this position? And being the ally that Judge Stevenson is talking about, you got to wrestle with somebody and say, why can't this person, why can't Michelle be in this felony court? Why can't this person be the head of criminal? Why can't this person be the head of this committee or whatever? And until we're willing to do that, that's why I come back to the policing with exclusion problem. I feel like women are afraid to do that. They're afraid to really step out and, and demand that. And I think that in addition to being more cognizant of our own implicit biases, because she's, Judge Kim is right, there also needs to be some accountability and women need to demand uh, a change, in my view. Well, I kind of live in a different world because uh, as a municipal judge, I would easily say half of our judges are women, if not more. Of course, we're appointed by the mayor and approved by city council. But as far as district judges in the state of Texas, they all have to run for election in parties. And in Harris County, I know since 2018, most of our district judges are women. It's just a different animal here where I live. And um, they're terrific. I just wanted to say, a lot of times we were talking about litigants giving us the blues or opposing counsel giving us the blues. I never really had much of that. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I grew up as a guy and I learned you just don't take shit off of people. And so as a woman, I still don't take shit off of people. And uh, if somebody in the courtroom is disrespectful, it's real easy. I just lean over the clerk and I say, get me a bailiff. And about 10 seconds, four burly bailiffs come in and take care of whoever it is. When I was first appointed, the religious and conservative people in this town uh, were really upset. And they said, well, we've got this lesbian mayor and this 
this transgender judge is just part of her gay agenda. And so the television and radio stations were calling me, trying to get me to come on and debate some of these people. And I said, why would I give these people airtime? I'm not going to give them airtime. I sit and preside over traffic court. I've just spent 30 years as a police attorney. You don't think I can't handle the traffic court? For goodness sakes. So I don't give those people the microphone. I refuse to give those people the microphone. Real quickly, let me say, my biography uh, is with a publisher. They're going to vote this week as to whether they're going to take it or not. It's already been reviewed. With luck, it'll be out in the fall, and it'll be called Her Honor. And I hope, you, I hope it makes it and hope you find it. Thank you, Judge Fry. Well, I think we're about out of time, or we are out of time. So I want to thank each of you for participating in this um, panel today. We could go on for another hour or two, I'm sure. Um, I know Julie and I had a list of questions, and I think we've only gotten through half of them. But um, being respectful of everyone's time, our audience's time and yours, um, I want to thank you again for participating. It's been such an honor speaking with each of you. Um, and a real pleasure to hear everything that you had to say. I was furiously taking notes, and I'm sure that some of our audience members will as well. Thank, Thank you, everyone. It's really been an honor to be amongst the company today. It's a real pleasure. Well, I agree. And all of you, don't take any grief from people. Just throw it back out. I think you should teach classes, Judge Fry. They should be called How Not to Take Shit from Anyone. I mean, I would sign up for that class. I, I have to be honest. Actually, we all And Judge Maria, your comment reminded me, I, I don't know if you folks have been uh, watching some of the ads on PBS here in Los Angeles for the American experience about the 19th Amendment. And there's a comment that, you know, they say that women were given the vote 100 years ago. We weren't given anything. We took it. It took yep. 70 years, 70 years to get yep. the 19th Amendment passed. So that is the, it, it, exhibit A of not... Uh, waiting for someone to patronize you. And wasn't it Frederick Douglass who said, nobody's ever just going to hand it over, you're going to have to demand it? I, much more artfully, of course, but um, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And by the way, Judge Stevenson, I also love Barbara Jordan, I, and I yeah. want to give her credit first person to say she wants to live in an America uh, that stands up to its promise, and, um, and she's one of my favorites as well. But. So we want to say thank you again to everyone. I think uh, I think that our, our audience is why we call this Voices from the Bed. Um, I think that's really significant throughout this series, and it's certainly echoed today by everyone's comments, and perhaps particularly by Judge Fry's comments. Uh, about women having a voice and using our voice, and using a voice to take the ground that we can. So with that, I'll just say thank you, everyone, again, for joining us. Thank you so much, Sarah, for this has been a great panel. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Please subscribe to receive future episodes and please share with colleagues and loved ones. You can learn more about this series at LACPA.org slash podcasts. Thank you to the planning committee, the Honorable Nicole Bershon, the Honorable Michelle Williams-Court, Julie Gerchik, a partner at Glazer Weil LLP, the Honorable Samantha Jessner, the Honorable Serena Murillo, the Honorable Elizabeth White, and the Honorable Amy Yerke.
We are grateful to Cecilia Gomez and Tom Walsh from LACPA for their hard work supporting the speaker series and to Lynn Florin for producing the podcast.